0: I'm Bill Bupert, retired Army officer and irregular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts in Irregular Warfare podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of irregular warfare. Today, I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Welcome to episode eight French counterinsurgency, Indochina. So, happy to have you along yet again. I wanted to express my appreciation to audience members who have reached out to me, listened to the podcasts, shared it with others. I do appreciate the time that you've taken to share with me and also making this podcast a little more widely distributed and known to others who may not have found it yet, who have an interest in this very subject. A little bit of housekeeping, I wanted to make sure that everybody knows, if they want to reach out to me at cgpodcast at pm.me, that's cgpodcast at pm.me. And for French counterinsurgency, I was going to do this in one single part, but I discovered in preparing for this episode that Indochina and Algeria deserve their very own discreet episodes. And this one probably will be slightly longer than part two because not only will I be discussing French Indochina, but I will also be giving an introduction to the French military and the French special operations, irregular warfare contingents that they've used over the past several hundred years. So let's clear the decks initially. There is a notion in American historiography and more commonly, in the American public, that the French are surrender monkeys, uh, they're second tier and third tier martial entities, and that they wouldn't know how to fight their way out of a paper box. Now, of course, this goes back mostly to what happened in 1940, where within a matter of six months minus, the German army defeated most of the French land forces and most of the French navy in detail in a brief period of time, and then they were occupied under the Vichy regime, which cooperated and collaborated with the German army until their liberation in late 1944. Like so many things, this is a mere snapshot of the military history of this great nation. I do have something of a parochial interest in the French nation, French history, French military history, and such, because My last name is Bubert, my first name is William, but in French it would be Guillaume Le Buper. Well, because of the French patois and the tangling of American tongues, I certainly don't go by that. I go by Bill Bubert, but nonetheless, I do have and am proud of my French ancestry. So dismissing these notions, which I think are mythology, that the French are not a formidable martial culture— we can go back into the dark mists of history. We can go all the way back to Caesar's problems in Gaul in taking down the, uh, the Gallic and French ancestors. This, of course, goes back to the first century B.C., before Christ. And then we can uh, fast forward through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And for my mostly American listeners, please, I don't mean to dismiss the listeners that I have from around the globe, but the the vast proportion of my listeners happen to be American and North American. What we discover is that in the French and Indian Wars prior to the American Revolution in 1775, and sometime in the future, I will talk about Rogers Rangers, and I will talk about the French voyageurs as irregular warfare practitioners and special operations operatives in the 18th century. The defeat by the English of the French in North America, not to mention the Spanish in North America, caused an alliance to occur after their defeat in 1764 65, in which the Spanish and the French plotted a revenge against the Americans. This revenge would culminate, of course, in vast materiel and financial and diplomatic support by both the Spanish and the French during the first American Revolution from 1775 to 1783. And in the last two years of that conflict, if it weren't for the French Navy and French soldiers and French materiel support and French training, the Americans, under the not-so-able stewardship and military leadership of George Washington, would not have fared as well as they would have, and they would not have met in Paris in 1783 to go see the British when they were suing for peace to come to some agreement on how the British, those who chose to leave, would finally leave the North American continent. And then let's uh, fast forward a little further. We have Napoleon after the savage French totalitarian revolution that occurred at the end of the 18th century, very shortly after the American denouement where the British finally left and the divorce with London was finalized, Napoleon emerges. Napoleon emerges, and for a dozen years or a little more, he literally takes the continent, for the most part, in a conventional sense. Napoleon manages to wrest suzerainty and uh, domination of the continent from whoever the prior owners were and makes it a French enclave, until Waterloo in 1814, and in 1814-15, the French Grand Army is defeated. So, what I want to do here is I want to illustrate that because of that, French martial prowess is first tier. French martial prowess and special operations in irregular warfare is first here, especially if we look back to what I was just discussing very briefly concerning the voyageurs and the French irregular warfare units and their alliance with Aboriginal nations in North America during that conflict led to significant losses in the first years of that conflict for the British and their allies on the continent. And let's take a brief moment to look at two significant dates. Those dates would be 1830, which is the French occupation of Algeria, on the northern part of the African mainland, literally across the water from what the French refer to as Metropolitan France, which exceeds the, the uh, perimeter of Paris. Met- metropolitan France refers to France proper on the European continent. And then another date is 1858, which is the French investment in a colonial empire that they squeezed out in Indochina which is what we'll be discussing today. And I want to call your attention to something that I'm only going to speak on briefly today, but which I will devote an entire episode to in the future, and that is the Spanish ulcer. The guerrillas and the irregular warfare practitioners in the mountains of Spain who harried, raided, and caused untold damage to the supply lines of communication for Napoleon throughout his siege of different Spanish areas and such, and... So what I want to demonstrate with that is not only were the French practitioners of the irregular warfare art in the 18th century, but they found at the beginning of the 19th century that they were levying their conventional forces against guerrillas themselves who were fighting against the French conquest of the European continent at the time. Algeria would become a French colony officially in 1839, and it is no mean coincidence that the French Foreign Legion was um, started in 1831. The French Foreign Legion spending a bunch of their time not only in Corsica, metropolitan France at the time, but expanding into the northern areas of Africa in these colonial possessions of France, where they really cut their teeth on operating as colonial and small wars entity. So let's get a definition straight here. I have made the claim in my podcast series that these counterinsurgency and insurgency notions that we entertain in the Western world today are nothing more than a new expansion of colonial warfare, and which is why we find that so many of the haunting soliloquies that we hear, whether it's in the 2006 uh, counterinsurgency manual that was penned primarily by Petraeus and a number of his colleagues and associates in the U.S. Army and the DOD, were influenced greatly by two French army officers who had a great deal to say about the French school of counterinsurgencies. counterinsurgency. Those guys would be David Galula and... Roger Tranquire. Now, we're going to talk about these gentlemen during the, um, the podcast today because they did have an influence, most likely primarily in Algeria, but certainly had a tangential influence in what transpired in Indochina and, of course, were inspired in both cases by the ignoble defeat in Indochina by the French. So the French Foreign Legion, I want to recommend a book to everybody here. Douglas Porch did a tremendous biography of the entire French Foreign Legion. I highly recommend it. You've heard me mention Douglas Porch before. I consider him one of the godfathers and primary influences of the very fact that I conduct this podcast because he woke me up from my drunken coin slumber— In the early 2000s to show that I had erred in my ways of thinking that Western, particularly American counterinsurgency, could successfully quell or put down rebellion. I would say possibly porch not only as the godfather, but a significant influencer as far as my thinking in the terms, in the framework, in the vision, and everything. And he gives me a really big leg up on using critical thinking skills and employing interrogative inquiries into why we've done things so badly, for instance, since 1945, where American arms, for the most part, has failed to deliver a martial success ever. I know, I know, and I'm repeating something I said in a previous podcast, but for those who didn't listen to previous podcasts, and this may be the first one you're listening to, Operation Desert Storm, 1991, if the very idea was to neutralize or make friendly to American national security in the Middle East the quelling or destruction of Iraq, well, a mere dozen years later, we Americans find themselves going into, with a coalition of allies, going into Iraq to do what Desert Storm did not do. French Indochina known as Vietnam and some of the contours of what we presently see as Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, was a French colonial possession since 1858. And in that book I just referenced by Douglas Porch on the French Foreign Legion, he says something really eerie at the beginning, near the beginning of the book, where he's talking about what's going on in the Tonkin area of Vietnam and where the French Foreign Legion... Senghalese, North African, and uh constabulary French and allies who are fighting there to include indigenous forces. What they're doing in the eighteen nineties is so much like what they ex- what the Americans experience a mere seventy years later, where with the American involvement of Vietnam getting a literal handover, as it were because of American activities that had been going on in Vietnam since the conclusion of World War II in 1945. As a matter of fact, in the year 1945, I think the first soldier, American soldier, to die at the hands of the Vietnamese rebels was in 1945. So what we have here is we have the French in 1945 finally wresting their colonies back from not only a Japanese invasion in Indochina, in which the Japanese high tide has ebbed and flowed and finally disappeared, I want to mention Algeria in passing. We will be covering that in the next episode, but you're going to see a lot of compliments between what the French do in Indochina and how the French behave in Algeria and why I think it led to both tactical and strategic defeats. Because the French were in a hurry. They were in a hurry to take the stain on their national honor that had been visited upon them by their quick defeat by the Germans in 1940 and the subsequent Vichy occupation and the subsequent fight internally, a domestic squabble of sorts between the Free French and the Vichy French, French, the Free French under de Gaulle, of course. What astonishes me is a quick note here is that The Maquis and the French Resistance and the communist cellular structure, which allowed the Maquis and the French Resistance to operate for the most part under German occupation, was a sizable organization. Of course, much more sizable on reflection if you listen to everybody who claimed they were members of the Maquis and French resistance, and not the Vichy collaborationist government during the entirety of World War II, in which the French were occupied from 1940 to ni- late 1944. What you discover is that here they practice guerrilla operations, they practice irregular warfare, they practiced an insurgency that was quite masterful, especially in its destruction of lines of communication, limited assassinations, things of that. But nonetheless from 1945 to 1954, when the French are finally defeated in Indochina at a battle that took one month, three weeks, and three days, where they were defeated in detail at Dien Ben Phu. And there are a number of great books on that that I will recommend. I may even do a future episode on that, even though it sort of um, chases tangentially the entire charter of irregular warfare. But Dien Ben Phu as a battle is such a great case study at both the conventional and irregular warfare level, on what happens when you not only severely underestimate the enemy, but you simply don't have what it takes. And the junk in the trunk, as it were... To provide for the vast logistical enterprise that is fighting an active battle at the bottom of a valley surrounded by high ground that is surrounded by your enemy who has invested you with artillery assets, rifles, infantry companies, you name it. And you don't have the legs or the means to provide for that besieged encampment of French army and French legionnaires during that entire battle. Not to mention that we discover that the French, these redoubtable and um, and terrific guerrillas, I put terrific in air quotes, during World War II fighting against the Germans and occupied France under Vichy collaboration. Here they are in Indochina, and we will discuss Algeria in a separate episode. But nonetheless, in both of those conflicts, you would think that they had no knowledge whatsoever of how guerrillas insurgents, and irregular warfare actors behave because they act in a fashion as if whatever transpired on the continent during World War II between 40 and 45 didn't matter a whit, nor was it considered in their prosecution of these conflicts in Indochina and Algeria, respectively. And of course, we have the willful willful ignorance of the Americans who David Galula, in uh, just before Vietnam War, he comes up with something called coin warfare theory and practice. And he talks about from the late 1800s to the late 1960s, what has transpired in Vietnam or, and what are the, some of the things that one can learn from that very thing. Because what Galula points out is pretty interesting. Galula, who had an influence on Petraeus and company in drafting the 2006 counterinsurgency, manual for the U.S. Army, in which we failed to prosecute properly irregular warfare efforts in both Iraq, Afghanistan, and by extension, the wars in Syria, the Horn of Africa, and Libya. Well, he's got a thin tome. I recommend that you read it. Galula on coin says you build or rebuild a political machine from the population upward. Again, this is where Galula champions the the idea that counterinsurgency should be a population-centric model. The employment of said model would prove to be disastrous for the French in Indochina. Even though they had been there since the mid-19th century, they still didn't have a really good grasp on how to make contact with the population, interact with the population, and find a way to make that population neutral or beneficial to French national security in this particular colony. Remember that insurgency is different wars for different rules. I had mentioned in a previous podcast where Maggie Thatcher and the IRA, Maggie Thatcher would make the claim that she could protect herself, but the IRA would make the counterclaim that you need to be right all the time. We need to be right once. The very same thing applies here. An insecure population will not co- cooperate with Counterinsurgents. One of the first things that counterinsurgents theoretically, because most of this is abstract, of course, and the execution is indeed what makes war winnable, to quote Napoleon, war is a simple art, all a matter of execution, end of quote. Again, you will find this a universal phenomenon in my discussion of irregular warfare throughout this entire podcast series, is keep in mind that constant in identifying the enemy and killing the wrong people has second and third order effects that quickly spin out of control for the rather fragile construct of all counterinsurgency in the West, and in this case, visiting the East. Let's take a moment to, to examine something that's rather interesting. Before 1945, when it came to colonial rebellion and the ability of colonial and small wars, Western imperial armies, to put them down. With very few exceptions, Western armies would find ways to quell rebellions, find ways to kill the necessary people or leadership that they discovered had caused rebellions in the first place. Of course, it was always bubbling below the surface as far as these rebellions. From the Raj in India to Indochina, to the Belgian, French, German, and British colonies in Africa, rebellion was always there. Rebellion was always a factor to consider. After 1945, it became even more so, and two factors started to make rebellion even more profitable for those who sought to throw off their colonial overlords, and that would be Mao's success, against Chiang Kai-shek and the eventual communist success and victory in mainland China in late 1948, 49, and 50, the Korean War from 1950 to 1953, and the use of proxy armies and the almost monolithic communist subsidy training and material leveling that both the Soviets and the Chinese and lesser communist entities would deploy against uh, these forces of Western colonialism. One thing I want to mention in passing is that I said the larger communist entities like the Soviet Union and China, because I want to mention that, for instance, and we're going to do an episode on this in the future, when one examines Cuban, Cuban arms and Cuban insurgency efficacy and material support in Angola And fighting against South Africa in the 1980s, the Cubans did a near-run thing where among the subsidizers, trainers, material provisioners of these domestic rebellions by external forces, in this case the Cuban forces, they did an extraordinary job. And we are are going to examine that in the future. We're also going to examine several other lesser entities uh, uh, other than the Chinese and the Soviets in fueling these proxy wars in the future. I find David Galulo to be pretty clear, but I did find somebody mentioned by Porch by the name of Daniel Moran, who looked at French warfare after 1945, in this case, colonial warfare, small wars. But, of course, we use the irregular warfare term because colonial isn't as sexy anymore. Moran says that there are three items that one has to keep in mind when it comes to this. Asymmetrical motives and revolutionary change. What he's talking about here is that what motivates the insurgent can be completely different to what motivates the counterinsurgent. And the counterinsurgent's misinterpretation of what those motivations may be will very easily lead to, yet again, fragile counterinsurgencies because it is my contention that all counterinsurgencies are anti are fragile, and all insurgencies, for the most part, are anti-fragile. See episode two to get a, um, a clearer and deeper read on just what that means. But what Moran is basically saying is that if you fail to understand what those motives are, for instance, I've told you the three pillars of insurgency are going to be legitimacy, narrative, And grievances, both perceived and real. Perceived or real, by the way, on the part of the counterinsurgents or the insurgents, but more importantly, the insurgents. He also talks about in post-World War II, you could mobilize global public opinion in a way that could never be seen in American history before that time. And again, sort of eerily prophesizing what I was going to say about fragility and anti-fragility with counterinsurgents and insurgents. He says successful insurgents evolve resiliency through ideological commitment because, in the end, time is on their side. Now, what we discover in Indochina is that there are a variety of root and proximate causes to the disturbances that are going on and the irregular warfare that's going on. One of the reasons for this is because we have a colonial expansion a reintroduction of colonial forces after World War II when the entire colonial enterprise is in the hazard. When we look at 1945 to 1950, we see this extraordinary whirlwind that encapsulates the entire globe in which colonial empire after colonial imperial holding after one another after one another just starts collapsing like dominoes. For instance, after the loss of the British Raj in 1948 and 1949, we discover that the British, who would brag in previous decades, the, Brit- the sun never sets on the British Empire. Well, the sun never sets on British imperial rocks because while they lose the Raj, they lose so many other things to include in the 1950s, Oman, parts of Yemen, places like that. In the Middle East, they start to diminish their influence in the Middle East. Of course, they have lost Palestine to Jewish forces and Israeli forces that make the state of Israel in 1948 and 1949, 1947 and 1948. And what we discover is that they're lording over rocks. They've got the Falkland Islands, they've got Ascension Island, they've got um, parts of the Indian Ocean, but they're rocks. And that is the totality of the British Empire. The French are in for the same treatment. Because the French not only get a drubbing in 1954 in which their imperial holdings in Indochina collapse, especially sort of like with the uh, the the lost battle at Dien Ben Phu, it's sort of the icing on the cake for the departure of the French from this particular imperial holding because they cannot hold it any longer. They managed to hold on to Algeria, which we will talk about in the next episode until 1962 but there's a lot of really interesting qualities to that particular departure that we will discuss then that sort of bleed eerily into what happened to the French in Indochina. Look, if you study history, which all of us should, remember I talked about this being a bloodless practicum available to military practitioners and scholars, because we can examine this vast panoply of history that shows us what works and what doesn't work and what doesn't work in the long term, but blindly... Most of the West goes on thinking that they can do things that they really can't, because when you look at the historical record, it shows failure after failure after failure. As I mentioned before, these small wars, these colonial wars, have upgraded to modern counterinsurgency with more sophisticated terminology and more neutral terminology and descriptions of what's going on. I am unconvinced that modern coin methods could have won these conflicts in both Indochina and Algeria. Korch would make the claim, quote, both wars lost because the strategic context in which the wars were fought defied a tactical remedy. That is bloody strong medicine because I have talked before, we'll revisit it again in a future episode. I hate to sound like a broken record when I say that, that most irregular warfare tries to occupy the space of strategic compression, which is where you use tactical forces, They tend to be smaller, more elite, more capable forces to achieve strategic outcomes. And when I talked about these kind of things in the past, I have said that if one doesn't master the tactical, operational, strategic, and grand strategic level in the pursuit of these conflicts, and you don't have those all nicely tied together with a bow, with intent and visionary frameworks harnessed to it so that one can discover what you're trying to achieve you, in the end, will achieve nothing. France's colonial apparatus was politicized by the civil-military fusion that the fight necessitated. What that means is that in World War II, the vast majority of the warfare was convention, was very conventional. Ships, artillery, mud to space, in that case, mud to airspace, uh Aircraft, production, industrial production, industrial protection, bombing, all of these things. There was a fusion of politics in order to craft intent into the strategic and grand strategic context. But once you have lower tactical and operational level units having to achieve political objectives and politicize the way they conduct their war, this is where the rubber meets the road and a lot of difficulties start to appear. Once the Americans started their adventure in Vietnam starting in 1945 as I had mentioned earlier but really ramping up after 1960 and 61 and 62 the French in 1954 when they lost at Dien Bien Phu which I would urge everybody to read about if they get a chance it's a, it's a fascinating military chapter in, in French history. They went to Eisenhower and said, in order to solve the problem of the logistical legs and supply chain issues that we're, that the French were encountering in that conflict, they asked for air support from Eisenhower, which he refused. I am of the belief, possibly, that if that air support and those logistical chains had been linked together, there was a possibility for Dien to survive past one month and three weeks, but I doubt if that would have been the case in the long term. So, even though Galula was ignored by the Americans in their conduct of the population centric model, which they did to a certain extent, but they didn't take it to the next level as they should have, American forces in this case, you'll find that when you look at Galula and especially Tranquire, Tranquire employed Torture employed interrogation methods that most civilized people would find absolutely awful and morally corrupt. But nonetheless, the Americans would employ that. As a matter of fact, the inspiration for the American Phoenix program, which went beyond the borders of Vietnam, the assassination program was French-inspired. As a matter of fact, David Kluh inspired the 2006 FM3-24 coin manual that was penned by... Petraeus and his colleagues, you know, Indochina for the French from the cessation of hostilities in Europe in April until December, April, 1945 until December, 1946, things were pretty quiet, but the full blown war, despite formal agreements with Ho Chi Chi Minh would start to really uh, hit the accelerator pedal in December, 1946. The war was fought with a hybrid of French Marines, Legionaries, Senegal and North Africans, joined by—and I put this in air quotes—associated states, which were Vietnamese, Lao, Cambodian, and other indigs to include to include the mountain tribes like the Montagnards. What it was in essence was a 19th century version of it was a 20th century version of 19th century colonial consolidation. And this would lead to so many disasters on so many levels. And one thing that one discovers when conducting COIN, if that's your conceit, even though it remains mine that Western countries find that impossible to achieve in a successful fashion, if there is no existing intelligence network, especially an intelligence network that has two key items, which is number one, you speak the language, and number two, You understand all the key players and all the resistance organizations that are arrayed against the French in this. They did not have that intelligence system, by the way. Not only did they not have that intelligence baseline and sophisticated and mature system in Indochina, they didn't have it in Algeria either. You'll find there's an Australian fellow named David Kilcullen who has made a killing, by the way, and being a, quote, counterinsurgency expert for the West— and a great influence upon Petraeus, the DOD, the Pentagon, in the prosecution of all these conflicts in the early 21st century for American and coalition forces fighting in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, and the Horn of Africa, is oil spots. Oil spots would be challenged all the time by the irregular forces. Now, in 1950... These oil spots are challenged, and and they've been challenged since the 1890s in in French Indochina Proper, The oil spot methodology is simply securing a level of assistance and buy-in from given populations and having those populations start to bleed out and seep into other contested areas until, at last, the oil spots connect themselves through the corpus of the nation state and coalesce into a kind of cooperative, organizational structure and ecology that is neutral or beneficial to the national security aims of the country that is conducting the invasion or the colonial business. It was December 1946, and then by 1950, we have a very ignominious retreat by many French forces down RC4, which is a major arterial there. And as a matter of fact, Bernard Fall, who wrote a terrific book called Hell in a Very Small Place concerning Dien Ben Phu, which I highly recommend for everybody listening if you get the chance, is he said, uh, it was the worst imperial defeat since Wolfe captured Quebec in 1759, end of quote. Defeat would come in 1954 at Dien Ben Phu. Uh, Two books in addition to the Bernard Fall book that I mentioned about Dien Ben Phu would be Valley of Death by Ted Morgan and The Last Valley by Martin Winslow, who also did a terrific history of the French Foreign Legion, which I'd recommend. So let me sum up. What it means is this. Basically, there were four myths, French delusions, that led to to these considerable defeats in both Indochina and Algeria. And we'll cover more on Algeria in the next episode. Number one is the belief in oil spots in the Tonkin frontier, because it was never stabilized, and some of them were abandoned. Uh, number two, there's a Lorentzian myth of strategic potential where irregular forces that are not Connected and integrated intimately with conventional forces will somehow still be able to do what they need to to achieve strategic objectives. That was clearly not the case when one examines how the French prosecuted this conflict. And the French resistance myth, the climate of insecurity, because if you have a climate of insecurity in a population centric model, what that means is that if the population feels as if the counterinsurgents are not providing them with the safety and the means to grow in peace and conduct commerce peacefully and such, then they are not going to be able to fill in all the intelligence gaps that are quite necessary for COIN to do their tactical and operational business. And here's something that, of course, we learned Early on, when you observe the American conflict, is that fortified airheads, an airhead is where paratroops land, secure that LZ, and then from there, establish a lodgment, and then from there, hopefully link up with conventional forces so that, in turn, they will be able to provide a force multiplier to the conventional forces, expand the lodgment, and expand the opportunities to neutralize or destroy enemy or threat formations in the vicinity. So this whole idea of a fortified airhead is a myth. It's a myth in a conventional sense. It's a myth on so many levels. In this case, the idea in Dien Ben Fu, that for that almost two months of that conflict on the valley floor, surrounded by the enemy at the, uh, on the high ground, that somehow they could fortify that airhead if they got enough supplies, logistics, and aerial reconnaissance and aerial assets to assist them, that they could do it. But there was never any concept of a linkage with conventional forces to establish that lodgment and eventually use the conventional forces to drive out the enemy threat on the high ground. So this myth myth was uh, quite substantially dismissed in 1954 at Dien Ben Phu despite the fact that I hold Trinquire because of his endorsement of torture methods and rough interrogation methods to be just an awful person to, uh, or, or, or quality to emulate. Nonetheless, he would make some comments and observations in league with Galula, in which that if you don't have a viable plan and a viable political strategy that is harnessed to all your martial efforts, in the end, no matter how bold your plan, no matter how many of the enemy that you kill, whether you've identified that they're actually enemy or innocence, you will not succeed. So if I leave you with anything here, the number one thing I want to leave you with is please don't dismiss the French as military amateurs. While they made plenty of mistakes here, In the past, as I had illustrated for the 18th and 19th century, and of course we went all the way back to the Gauls fighting Caesar uh, um, almost 1,500 years earlier, don't dismiss them. Uh, To a certain extent, French behavior since the end of 1962, which we will talk about for the Battle of Algiers and Algeria in the next episode— has been nothing to sneeze at, but nonetheless, I classify them as a first-tier military force, but I stand by my conceit that the West, no matter what ally, coalition, or individual nation structure it is, cannot conduct counterinsurgency successfully. So that concludes this particular episode about the French, an introduction to French forces and a regular warfare methodology, an introduction to... David Galula and Trinquire, and also talking about their defeat in Indochina. I look forward to you joining me for part two of the French when we talk about Algeria in the next episode. Again, housekeeping. I want to remind everybody, if you wish to discuss, contest, or in a well-mannered way, contradict what I say or or call me on something, please, cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. And I want to thank my listeners for indulging me. This is Bill out.